Good morning, everybody. I'm going to be reading from um, Luke 19, 1 to 9. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Thanks, Shireen. In 2017, the third year of our existence, we baptized as a community 20 people. In 2018, as a community, on record, we baptized 10 people. In 2019, we baptized six people. In 2020, our favorite year in our history, we baptized seven people. 2017 was the year we saw the most baptisms as a church. It was also the year we saw the least financial giving in our church. Can't explain it. Don't know what's in it. But for the last five years, we have grown numerically as a church. There has not been a year where we have not seen numerical attendance growth. We have, I think, 16, maybe 17 life groups as, as we stand. We have seen amazing health. A lot of people come to our church and go, wow, this is amazing. And I am so grateful. And I am not trying to shock you. But what I am noting is an interesting trend. 2017, 20. 2018, 10, 6, and 7. Maybe you look at me and you go, Rog, there's two types of problems. Yours and mine. That's yours, Rog. Sorry about that. Maybe you went through the heaviest of lockdowns and you're looking and going, that's a problem for another day. I'm just glad I found some people who would love me in some of the loneliest, most isolated times, and I'm just glad that I've got someone, and I'm glad for you, and I'm glad with you. Maybe you're going, Rog, that's your job. Aren't you the pro-Christian? You're the guy who gets paid to do this stuff. You go reach people. You go get them baptized. I've got a job to do. I've got stuff going on in my life. Maybe some of you are deeply invested in loving people far from God. Maybe some of you listen to the story of Zacchaeus and you go, yes, I want to see more moments like that. I want to see people who are far from God. I want to see people who wouldn't give God another chance suddenly coming into a radical, transformative relationship with Him where everything is turned upside down because Jesus came into their life.
how to kill a moment. <laughs> Granted, it's been a tough last two years, and that just may be the case, and it happens. And it's been immensely difficult to even get someone to church and to get them to get online. And people have been in survival mode. But I want to tell you today, if you are part of Common Ground Church and you're joining us on this This Is Us series, we have been looking at what it means to be us. What does it mean to be part of Common Ground Church Bloberg? And we've answered the question, we are a community that are defined by the gospel, and we believe that we are called to fill our hearts and our city with the message and the life of Jesus. That's what we do. That's who we are. And we're trying to work out what does that look like. And we've seen that it looks like being a people who are willing to be formed into the image of Jesus. We are not the finished product. We are on a journey of being changed. It's tricky. It's complicated. Sometimes we need to let go of stuff and it's difficult. Sometimes we need to do better at beholding God. We are in a journey of transformation. But we're also on a mission to fill our hearts and to fill this city with the life of Jesus. And it's a crucial one. It's so vital that I, I, I can't be more excited to tell you this story of Zacchaeus that we've just read. Let, let's get a bit of context here. So we've got Zacchaeus, okay? We'll get to him. But firstly, it says, if you look at the, the first part of this passage, Jesus entered Jericho. So you've got to start where the passage starts. It starts with Jesus. Now, whenever you see the word Jesus in the Bible, you need to understand that this is God coming to earth to show the world what he's like. It's a very important fact. You're not just reading about a guy who walks into the city. You're reading about the God-man who is revealing to humanity what God is like. So when Jesus is mentioned, your ears are pricking because you're going, this is no ordinary human being. This is the God-man. And he's going to show me a little bit of what God is like. And so Jesus, the God-man, is entering into Jerusalem. That's the first and an important part. And we're going to see the lengths that God will go to, the, the deep conviction that God has on his heart to show the love that he has, the lengths he'll go to to show how he will save people. He will rescue people. And we've got this story of Jesus in a very interesting time because what's happening here is that Jesus, we see a couple of chapters earlier. You'll pick it up in Luke chapter 9. Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus is passing through Jericho, but he is on his way to Jerusalem. And when the writers of Scripture say Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem, they are saying he has set his head, his, his course towards his own crucifixion. He knows where he's heading. This is not just a kind of gentle meander down through one of the nicest cities in ancient uh, Near East. This is a man who is walking his path towards his own death. He knows where he's headed. He's already told his disciples numerous times, the Son of Man must give up his life. He's going to the Passover knowing he is going to be the Passover lamb. They're going to slaughter lambs, but there's another one who's going to be slaughtered who is the true lamb, and he knows he's heading there. So there's a lot going on in Jesus right now, and he's passing through a place called Jericho. He's going through Jericho. Now, Jericho is a fascinating city. They say it might be the longest inhabited uh, city uh, on earth. 
It has, been, uh, it has existed for so long. It seems to have been a kind of winter home for cultural elites. This is where people would go. It's a bit like the Monaco of today. People would go there to, you know, stay in their beautiful homes, escape some of the nasty, heavy weather, you know, in the springtime. They would go there and they would rub shoulders with the who's who in their beautiful homes. And uh, it was just an amazing place to be. Imagine um, uh, kind of the, the Grammys, you know, the, where everybody's arriving in the city and holidays. Hollywood and, and there's just like this who's who are passing through. They're passing through because they're all making their journey towards Jerusalem. They're also probably a whole bunch of pilgrims moving towards Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And there is this buzz in the air as they are moving towards this big celebration. And Jericho seemed to have this ability to attract the who's who. One uh, historian says it like this about Jer- Jericho. It had a great palm forest and world-famous balsam groves, which perfumed the air for miles around. Its gardens of roses were known far and wide. Men called it the city of palms. Josephus called it a divine region, the fattest in Palestine. Romans carried its dates and balsam to worldwide trade and fame. It was an incredible city. You're arriving to uh, this place that is just filled with dignitaries. The who's who of the Near East have pitched up. It's springtime. The weather is perfect. It is happening. The beaches are packed with everybody. Their signatures from all the cool kids. They are trying to get uh, into this amazing space to be a part of the Jericho life because they're heading towards Jerusalem. Passover is happening. There would have been loads of priests all over the place because they were also, you know, high-standing politicians. You know, you're mixing the Grammys with the State of the Nation address. You ever watch them walking down the red carpet, the city of Cape Town, end of February, starting to buzz with all kinds of dignitaries who want to be seen to be close to the president and to all those addresses and the people who have money and power. doesn't matter if they corrupt. They are there and they are connecting and they are doing their thing because the who's who are there. This is Jericho. It's filled with tourists. It's, it's a buzzing space. Then we got Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. He is, there's three things we learn about Zacchaeus. Firstly, he's wealthy. He's got lots of money. He's got what a lot of people want, money. A lot of people in our generation want what he's got, and they pursue it quite relentlessly. He's a wealthy guy, which means he knows probably a lot of people because money back then as now seems to have a level of power whereby you have uh, some sort of access to the, the who's who of society. We also see that he was a tax collector. Now, if you haven't, don't know what a tax collector is, it was a, basically a vocation that was forbidden. You, you couldn't be a tax collector and a Jewish person. You were either a Jew or a tax collector, but you had to take your pick because essentially what had happened was that the Romans had come in. They had taken over Israel. They were now the ruling party. They were the ones who ruled Israel, but there were these Jewish people who lived in their homeland, and they believed that they shouldn't be paying these heavy taxes, and the taxes seemed to get more and more burdensome as each year passed to the point that they would have these uprisings and these revolts and these petitions to the Herod to say, please, you are crippling us. You can't keep doing this. But the Romans would do this amazing thing. They would go to susceptible, vulnerable Jewish people and say, we need you. And they would win them over by promising them wealth. And these Jewish people would become tax collectors who would go to their fellow Jews 
who would have rejected them at that point, but they would go to them and they would collect taxes and they would be able to keep a portion of those taxes. And so they were the scum of the Jewish earth. They were the betrayers. They were the ones who had moved over to the other side. This was unthinkable that you as a Jewish person would start associating with such horrific corruption. How dare you do that? Jesus is walking into Jericho And here is a wealthy man named Zacchaeus who is a Jewish tax collector. But there's one more thing. Two more things, actually. He was the chief tax collector. He wasn't just any tax collector. He was the chief of the corrupt. He wasn't just corrupt and stealing from the the poor to make the rich richer. He was the chief of all the corrupt people. I'm sure if you're South African, you've got a few names bubbling through your head right now. You know some corrupt names that have gone to a few commissions or been mentioned in some commissions. You've got some names. These are the kind of characters that are associated here. This is Zacchaeus. We have living examples of that in South Africa. The chief of tax collectors. Oh, and one more fact. He was short. He was short. He couldn't see Jesus. I don't know why in the scriptures they add this fact, but they say he was short. Sometimes in God's sovereignty, he uses parts of our anatomy and the realities of our physical lives to do something redemptive. It's not beyond God to use some random things to cause his beautiful redemptive story to happen. That's pretty cool, by the way. It's a really cool thought that you think in a a, a world obsessed with how we look, God moves to a guy who was short. I love it. So Jesus walks through in verse 5. He's imagine, just imagine this now. He's walking through the crowds, and there's, there's, there's no doubt tension. Jesus is coming to Jericho. Jesus, who, remember Jesus? He's the one who, who's been going and challenging priests. But, but the amazing thing is that the story's gone ahead, no doubt. He's been performing miracles. He's getting a bit of a reputation. People are starting to follow him. But, but where does he stand, and what is he going to do when he comes to Jericho? Because Jericho is filled right now with cultural elites. What is, who is he going to hang with? Who's he going to talk to? Who won't he talk to? Well, who's he going to challenge? What miracles is he going to perform? What is going to happen when this guy, Jesus, whose reputation precedes him, what's going to happen? We see that there are crowds. There is something that is stirring in this little Jericho story. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Hundreds, probably thousands of priests. Now, don't think the priests that you've got in your head, you know, the, the silly religious priests who've, you know, been, uh, you know, saying silly things and Jesus gives a hard time. These are priests who have, for the last hundred years, they've got a lineage of fighting for Jewish heritage. They've been preserving the Torah. They've been teaching the Bible. They have been under great persecution. They have looked after the scriptures. They have held on to faith. They've done amazing things. Not all these priests are evil, naughty, whitewashed tombs who just can't see Jesus. These are people who are probably a bit like pastors in our generation. They're they're trying their best. Not all priests were evil, but the city was probably full of them. And Jesus walks past all these dignitaries, and he knows how many people are filling this, the, the homes and the beautiful views in the city, and he looks up, and he says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down immediately, because I want to come have a meal with you. 
I've heard you make a mean lasagna and I wanna hang with you. And I wanna get into your home and I wanna get to know you. And I wanna show you what I'm like. Isn't this a beautiful story? Just think about the options Jesus has. Think about the kinds of people he could go to and then think about the kinds of lengths that God might go to to love and to save some people. See, Jesus doesn't just recognize him and go, Zacchaeus, I see you up there. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to come into your home. All the people saw this and began to mutter. How do you mutter? He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said, Lord, look, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Just imagine this. You've got this corrupt South African person in your head, right? Whoever it may be. A very famous person, preacher, pastor, whatever it is, comes into the city, gets invited to go to the State of the Nation address. There are all kinds of amazing people lining the streets. Camps Bay is packed with dignitaries. Uh, Constantia is full of them. This guy could go and have a meal with anyone, the most impressive authors who have written profound books and changed nations. And a corrupt criminal whose name keeps popping up at every commission you go to. Take your pick. <laughs> climbs up a lamp pole, climbs onto a balcony. And it says it was springtime. Think about it. It was springtime. So the leaves would have been covering Zacchaeus. He probably wanted to get a view, but he didn't want to get seen. This would have been a full leaf tree, they say. Theologians and, and, and commentators say, this wasn't Zacchaeus going, pick me. This was Zacchaeus probably going, please don't see me, but I'd like to see you. And he looks up and he says, come down. Come down, I'm going to have a meal with you. I know that home in Constantia shouldn't be yours, but I'm coming to it anyway. And I know that money you've got, you earn through all kinds of disreputable ways. It shouldn't be your money, but I'm coming to your house and I'm gonna love you and I'm gonna hang with you. I'm gonna spend some time with you. And he responds by saying, here, everything I've got. I'm gonna give four times back what I've, what I've stolen from these people. And I'm going to commit myself. I'm, I'm going to pitch up a church and I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to join a kid's ministry and I'm going to help out. But you know what? That's not all. That's just my Sunday stuff. I want to make sure that my 24-7 life is radically, holistically permeated with what Jesus has done to me today. You see, radical, radical acceptance turns into amazing radical repentance. This is not the story of Jesus coming to his home and he goes, you know what? You just give your money away and then I'll love you. He gets into the home first and then Zacchaeus responds. Radical acceptance turns into beautiful repentance. It's never the other way around. Never, ever. Thank you, Natalie. Never the other way around. And you've got to get this, by the way. If you believe, uh, if you want to hear anything about the gospel, you need to understand it's acceptance first, repentance second. God says, come in. I'm coming to you. I love you first before you will ever do anything to love me in return. And when you get that and your heart is melted by that love, then something changes and you go, you know what? This money doesn't compare to this love and having this stuff doesn't compare to living a just life and I will learn to live justly because I have found acceptance and love in a way that I could never have 
imagined. And Jesus looks around at him, and no doubt everyone's listening, and he says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. We're looking at what happens when God comes into the world and the lengths he'll go to to show his incredible love. How does your heart respond to people who are far from God? What do you think of? What does your life look like as a, as a reflection of the fact that so many people are walking around the face of our earth, and not just our earth, but our very neighbors and our friends and our family, some we know, some we don't, who don't know Jesus? What tree are you maybe hiding in this morning? Maybe you've arrived, been dragged along, and you yourself are in a tree. Maybe it's a tree of depression and pain, just hoping you don't get found. But you just want a glimpse to see maybe, just maybe. Maybe you're hiding in the tree of social media and distraction and consumption, and you know it's not satisfying you, but you just can't stop this process of trying to get more and accumulate more, and, and so you just want a glimpse maybe. Maybe it's just pure depression and you're just here going, I'll give you another shot. I don't even know why I'm here, but I am up this tree. I don't know what your story is, but I do know that this story says that when Jesus walks into town, he says, come down. I want to have a meal with you. I want to be with you. I want to connect with you. Church history tells us that Zacchaeus became a bishop in the church. He became a radical figure in the early church. It's a remarkable story. Jesus could have chosen so many people to go and have a meal with, and he chose Zacchaeus. Two things we're learning for now is this, is that the length and how far God will go to to reach people far from God. He'll go so far. And the thing is, Secondly, how holistic and powerful and transformative this salvation is. Jesus doesn't just want you to keep pitching up at church. If you put your faith in Jesus, keep coming back to church. He wants your whole life and he, he wants to radically reorient you around what matters most. So what are the implications for us? What are, what are the implications for us who have seen an increase in our numbers, who've seen amazing booms? We've got Ignite Ministries for young people, that's booming. And we've got Kids Ministry, that's booming. And we've got an auditorium full of people who are going, yay, but our baptisms are going like this. What do we do? I'm not angry. I'm not disappointed. I'm not cross with anyone. I'm, I'm just simply praying today that we would firstly reclaim our hearts for lost people that we would reclaim Jesus' heart for the lost, that we would find ourselves realizing that we are in our Jericho, that we too are walking through streets filled with people who are hiding in the trees, trying to get a look at what might be going on. What's happening? Is the story real? I don't know where you find yourself. I don't know if you're choosing the comfortable road and going, you know what, if maybe somebody calls me and says, can I come to church, then maybe, you know, I will, you know, take them along. But I'm still a little nervous even of that because there's just so many things I don't want to, you know. 
Maybe you're, you're radically committed. I learned this from John Tyson. I give him a lot of thanks for helping me through this passage. But there's something called the redemptive edge. I think it's there. The redemptive edge is where Jesus is most at work redeeming people. And many of us probably live, if you look at this continuum, in the space of comfort with caution. You know, where it's like, you know, I, I, if it's comfortable, cool, I'll move cautiously towards Jesus towards, you know, the, the more scary stuff in life, where people are actually going, no, Jesus, I'm critical towards him. Actually, pure darkness. It's just, it's, it's anti-God. But what's interesting about the life and ministry of Jesus is that most of, or very little, of his redemptive work seems to happen in the comfort caution space. Just read the Gospels. Find spaces where it's just like all comfortable and people are just walking around going, oh, I wouldn't mind a taste of Jesus and take, add that to the concoction. No, so much of the power of Jesus' ministry happens in this next slide. Where there is criticism and darkness, where it is on the edge, where it feels like cutting edge, scary stuff. Oh my gosh, I actually am not interested in Jesus. No, actually, this is evil. I don't wanna be part of the church. And so much of Jesus' life happens there. Think about it. He ate with sinners, people who were outcasts of society. I think of how he had so much time with women who were seen to be lesser in those days. And, and he pushed the boundaries back and he, he changed society in that way. I think of um, unreputable disciples. One of his very disciples was a tax collector. The tax collectors knew there was no interaction with anyone mildly religious. It was filled with criticism on both sides. It was, the, it was the wild west, and Jesus moved into the wild west, into the dark places. The book of Acts, full of demon possession. Think of Zacchaeus himself. He was the chief of the corrupt, and Jesus moves in. The redemptive edge of Jesus' ministry is not necessarily in the clean, neat little places of our life. It's a pity. It would be so nice if we could just live in our little white picket fences. Here's the beauty is that even in those spaces, God seems to be on the move right now. I honestly think that if most of us picked up the phone and invited our neighbors to church, probably 50% would go, okay, I'll give it a go. But we're too darn lazy sometimes to even try. We too, I think sometimes our, our hearts, we may be just too scared to, to necessarily make that interaction. We, we're scared of the rejection. We're scared of what we might lose. We're scared of whatever it may be. I don't know what it is that sometimes gets between us, but I, I want to suggest today that Jesus walks in and he goes into the redemptive edge, the, the space of criticism and darkness, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. And I want to ask us today to, I suppose, freshly open ourselves to reclaiming Jesus' heart for people far from God. I had a beautiful moment I shared with a few of you a while back, sitting around a campfire in the middle of KZN. Got gifted two nights in a beautiful game lodge in KZN, far northern KZN. It's, it's a random place, and there were only five other guests out of the many chalets that were available. And I'm sitting around a campfire. You sit around a campfire and there are six people, I would say. One, two, mix, or exclude my family. We don't count, there's too many of us. Besides us, there's another single guy, a couple, and, a, and their son, who's in his 40s. And I get chatting to the one guy, and I discover that we went to the same school. That's interesting, we're in northern KZN. He lives in London and I live in Cape Town. This is bizarre. We're not close to our school and we're not close to where we live. 
We chat loud enough for these people to hear. And this guy goes, I also went to your school. <laughs> There's three of us who all went to the same school. When moments like that happen, you better realize you're staring up a tree. And there's somebody God might be calling you to come down. So I build a friendship with this guy and I realize like I'm here for two days and I'm here to just chill before we get back to work and the real part of life and things are hectic. And something in me goes, no, you're on a redemptive edge moment. And this guy says to me, to be honest with you, I am not into religion, which is his way of going, please don't try to tell me that stuff that you believe in. I know you're a pastor and your family are amazing. And he says, afterwards, he says, I, I, all, I, all I thought about that whole time in the bush was how filled with love you guys were. And man, if you saw me as a dad, you wouldn't necessarily think I'm always filled with love. But he saw something that he didn't have. And I realized that there are Zacchaeus moments that are gonna come and follow us. And their neighbors and their interactions and their interruptions that are gonna come our way. And I wonder if you're aware of how high the stakes are today. I wonder if you become a little complacent, like I do tend to sometimes, where you kind of have just bought into the secular narrative that simply goes, you know what, we're just okay with pursuing uh, you know, the, the things of success. You can relentlessly pursue success, and it's gonna make you amazingly happy, no matter what. And you look at the veneer, and you go, they look pretty happy not realizing that in so many ways we believed a number of lies. We believed the lie that maybe they're not fine. Because that's the first lie we tend to believe, don't you think? We go, they look fine, they look happy. Not when they're lying in bed at night. Not when they wake up in the morning and face the day. Our world is not happy. People look happy. We're doing a great job on social media of putting up a veneer. Let me promise you, we're not as happy as we look. And people without Jesus are less happy. You sometimes might be going, you know what, they're fine. And I don't want to put religious kind of guilt on them. I wouldn't want to make them less happy than they already are. Not realizing you don't have religious guilt. You've got the gospel of the kingdom of God that's in this little jar of clay, says Paul. And you've got to give it to someone. They're not fine. The other lie we tend to believe is there's no way they'd be interested. No way. Look how busy they are. Look what they're up to. Look at the, all the other stuff they love. There's no way they'd be interested. And so we just zip it. Just keep quiet. Just leave them to be. What if they're lying on their beds, haunted by Jesus' words? What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul. What if they are lying in bed, having heard that as a child, knowing that they are pursuing relentlessly to get more and gain more and become more, but somewhere deep down, they're losing their souls. And they're waiting for someone to love them enough. Lecrae said, rather than thinking of the world in categories of good and evil, rather see it as good and redeemable. There's a group of people who need redemption, and they're in your life and mine. Here's some interesting stats to help you but just kind of get your head around this. 96% of evangelicals, this was Barna Institute, they're probably the most reputable institution for uh, research. 96% of them, people, evangelicals, say that uh, part of my faith means to be a witness about Jesus. Okay, 96% of people say, cool, I think I should be a witness. Listen carefully. 
47% of millennials, that's people born in the 80s up into the 90s, uh, 47% of millennials think it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in the hopes that they will one day share the same faith. 47% of them think it's wrong to try convince or convert someone to believe what we believe, what you believe as a follower of Jesus. But here's a much more complicated problem is that millennials, this 47% who actually think it's not right, seem to be the most connected. Millennials seem to have at least four people in their life, close contacts or friends, who don't believe the same thing as they do. Whereas boomers, the age bracket uh, born before the 80s and earlier, they seem to have one contact with people who don't meaningfully believe in and follow Jesus. So the millennials, 40%, 47% of whom don't believe they should share their faith, are the most connected to people who don't share their faith. That's a concern. As a millennial, you're more connected. If you're born in the 80s, you're born in the 70s, build some connections and realize God has positioned you to love people, to help them, to find and follow Jesus. Here's one of the things we're told. Don't try convert people. Now, this is like such a complex and interesting conversation. But, but we're told all over. I, I know many friends of mine, you work in, in big and small corporates, and you're told you're not allowed to share your faith in the workplace. I'm not going to argue right now the merits on that. What I am going to say is this, is that everyone is trying to convert people all the time. So please don't believe the lie that as a Christian, if you don't try help people to find and follow Jesus, you're just doing what everyone says. The very notion that we shouldn't try convert people is a conversion process in itself. That God doesn't matter and you choose your path, you've been converted. <laughs> Get it? You've been converted into a worldview that says, don't worry, each to their own, we'll all be okay. But, but, but professors and university lecturers, they are converting all the time. Politicians, do you think they're not trying to convert you to their view? They are. We are all part of these amazing, think of marketers. They are trying to convert you to believe things all the time, that their product is the best. Conversion is the name of the game in our generation. The question is to what? What are we part of converting people to and what are we being converted to? It kind of goes back to last week's topic, right? We are all part of a society that is trying to form us into something, convert us towards something. What if we took our cue from Jesus who walked with and into Jericho and transformed Zacchaeus' life? Let me land by simply saying this. Why don't you pray and position yourself as someone God can use? Why don't you begin today to take a moment to consider your life, your posture towards people, and ask the question, are you a convert of the tolerance generation that goes, you do you and I'll do me? Or is your heart freshly broken for the fact that actually we live in a world with Zacchaeus's hiding up trees, wondering, is there actually hope in a very depressing society? Is there actually hope in a war-torn world? Is there really hope in this world that is so consumeristic and self-centered? Is there something for my life? The answer is, come down, I wanna eat with you. There is one in Jesus Christ who lived that life that none of us could have lived, who died the death all of us should have died, 
and rose again to start a life and a kingdom that all of us can be included in. He dealt with our pain, he dealt with our sin, and he dealt with the problem of our gap between God and us, and he says, come, I wanna eat with you. I wanna transform your whole life. Would you let me in? How about today we reorient our lives, church? How about today we go, maybe seven isn't enough. I can't tell how many people must or mustn't get baptized. There may be some of you today, you've come to faith recently. You need to get baptized, by the way. Baptism is the start of the journey. If you're not baptized as an adult who believes in Jesus, come chat to us straight after. We want to help you f- uh, start the journey by getting baptized. It's going to happen ASAP. We'll make sure of that. But here's the thing. What if we don't wait for me to preach a message next time, but we become living, embodied messages that the friendships we're building and the people we're interacting with become recipients of the one who says, come down, I want to have a meal with you. Won't you stand with me? The band are gonna come up and I'm gonna lead us in a little bit of prayer and I want you to do your best in this moment to stay focused, to stay aware that God is at work in your life. Remember Kronos versus Kairos? Let's try not think of the Kronos of what's next. Maybe you want to close your eyes to stay in the God moment. To stay aware that God is at work in your life. I shared a story a while ago and maybe you just want to reflect on this. Never in my years of leading a church has anyone left our church because we don't love the lost enough. I've had people leave our church because our worship is too loud or too quiet. I've had people leave our church because the preaching doesn't fit their preferences, because the kids' ministry doesn't do what they were hoping it would do, but never because we didn't fulfill the Great Commission to go make disciples. What a strange thought. What if today we actually start with a moment of repentance, which is to change our mind and to say, sorry, Lord, that I've maybe turned church into a bit of a preference-driven thing, that I want, to, I want worship to be my way. I like preaching to be 32 minutes, not 38 minutes. I want the kids' work to do this, not that. And to remember, Jesus, you never called us to build sweet churches. You called us to be part of churches that are on the redemptive edge, that are loving friends and colleagues who are cynical, who are angered, who are hateful even, potentially. But it seems like there is where you're at work. Around random campfires, around water coolers, on Zoom meetings, after Zoom meetings when everyone's logged off except one. On random interactions when the ball goes over the wall and we meet our neighbor for the first time and we wonder why. When our car won't start and somebody has to help us and we build a friendship. When our courage grows and we realize we need to have those neighbors over. Jesus, would you give us a bit of your heart today? 
would you remind us today that we live in a world of people who need you. God, they need your wisdom. They don't need us shoving unhelpful social media posts down their throat. They need love and friendship. They need interaction and trust. But Jesus, they don't need nothing. Today we come and avail ourselves. We give ourselves to you and say, like Isaiah said, here we are, Lord. Send us. Not because it's easy, not because it's comfortable, not because it's cheap, but because you've said, Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and on earth, says the living God, has been given to me, says Jesus. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Thank you that all the nations have been coming to our city. We don't even need to fly necessarily. But if you want us to fly, we will fly, Lord. If you want us to drive, we will drive. If you want us to walk to the neighbors, we will walk. If you want us to phone, we will phone. But we won't do nothing because all authority has been given to you to go make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father, a Father who loves, in the name of a Son who has given Himself and shown us that you are good, and in the name of the Spirit which promises that you will be with us always. You will presence yourself on this mission. Since Jesus saying, you try me. Just try me, even this afternoon. Go love someone. Go connect with someone. Call someone. I will be with you. Because he said at the end of that great commission, and surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. Jesus, today is not a comfortable message, but it's a message that I think you would want us to hear. It's a message that calls us to reorient just bits of our life. While all eyes are closed, maybe some are actually aware that you've been hiding in the sycamore tree. That actually today's a day for you to come down and to let Jesus into your life. Today's a day where you need to say, yes, you can come in. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of hiding. I'm tired of getting glimpses. Today I want to trust you. I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to receive your love. Won't you all keep your eyes closed. And if you are wanting me to just walk with you in a prayer of saying, yes, Jesus, I'm here. I'm climbing down the tree. Would you just pop up your hands so I can pray with you? Just say, yes, I'm coming. Beautiful. Anybody else saying yes to Jesus today to just trust Him? Amazing. You can pop your hands down. I've seen those amazing hands. It's not the hands that do anything magical. It's the Jesus who comes into your life who brings His joy and His presence and His forgiveness. Just with me, under your breath, say, Jesus, I receive you into the whole part of my life. I accept all of who you are, and I thank you for your powerful love. From today forward, I want to live in your forgiveness, and I want to let you coach me in every part of who I am. I don't come because I've got it together. I come because I need you to pull it together. And because you love me first, have my life. Jesus, as we sing, I pray that you would stir our hearts freshly. 
I pray that we wouldn't be a community that's comfortable. I pray that we wouldn't be a community who's going, we're normally finished by now. (laughs) But that we'd be a community who say the stakes are high and your love is real and this message is good. And it will come to fruition when heaven and earth are once again reunited. And we see you coming on the clouds in all your glory and all those awkward calls and all that time spent in prayer for people far from God will make sense. Teach us today. Move us freshly, we pray. Use this song as we corporately say, yes, Jesus. We're joining you as we enter Jericho. Let's sing.